Hello and welcome to a podcast episode of ECFR's Women of Middle East Network for Peace Building. This network brings together women experts from or with ties to the Arabian Peninsula and Iran. My name is Ellie Jeremiah. I am the Middle East and North Africa Deputy Director at ECFR. And I am delighted uh, to be introducing this second special uh, podcast in our series focused on geoeconomic trends in the Middle East regions, particularly following the recent thaw between Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, since March this year. Uh, today, we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Nader Shamlu, who is a former senior advisor at the World Bank with over 30 years of experience and is now a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, Nadara, welcome to the network. Welcome to this conversation. We're delighted to have you here. You've been working on the various economic trends in the Middle East, but more globally and beyond. So we're really excited to have your expertise today. Um, let me kick off uh, with, a, with the first question, initial question, to, to ask you how you assess uh, the, let's say, economic ramifications of what we're seeing politically underway between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And especially given your expertise on, on the Iranian economy, what do you think Iran is hoping to gain um, from this political thaw uh, from an economic angle? So over to you, Nadja. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. It's really a great pleasure and honor to be invited by the European Council on Foreign Relations, and I'm really delighted to join this fantastic uh, uh, group of uh, ladies, and I'm sure that there's also quite a few gentlemen in, in this group, uh, to discuss really some of the key issues about uh, about this, uh, about the region. I think that um, um, very often we hear, we read uh, negative news in, in the, you know, in the media, Usually, the negative news hits the hits the front pages earlier than than you know any kind of good news. But I think that there is there is a lot of um, uh, positive. Uh, there are a lot of positive developments in the region. When when I mean the region, there also you know I'm looking just beyond uh, Iran and the GCC countries. There's a little uh, some some good news. Of course, the challenges continue uh, continue to remain. Um, so what what do I see in terms of uh, the economic uh, uh, let's say aftershocks of the of the uh, you know sudden uh, Iran um, uh, Saudi Arabia thawing? Uh, First of all, I think that uh, it, it gives um, you know everybody has been sort of like holding their breath. Is like when is this when is a a conflict erupting when is when is there going to be a real hot war rather than a cold war between these two countries and i think this uh, this rapprochement this uh, agreement of kind of you know starting their somewhat i would say a slow um, relationship uh, gives people some kind of security that at least in the foreseeable future there will not be a conflict. And a conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran would have probably had much more repercussion for the broader region, the, the, the other countries in, in the region. So I think that that is a very positive um, positive development. Um, I don't see much in terms of real 
in integration of economies or in investments across uh, across the Persian Gulf. I don't see. I, I mean, I I just cannot imagine that suddenly from one day to the next there will be a, a you know a big uh, rush to do it. I'm sure that there will be quite a few sort of like symbolic. Um, uh, symbolic actions, you know, trade, uh, trade delegations moving back and forth. But I, there is still a lot of, um, um, raw nerves in, in this process, both from the Iranian side and from the, um, from the Saudi side to kind of, you know, forget, uh, forget, uh, forget those, uh, um, I would say difficulties in their relationship, but there will be certainly certain symbolic uh, steps um, that will be taken. There will probably be more um, uh, tourist visits between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but that's you know, all also that existed even before to some extent. Um, I think that uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia is going to be a bigger um, winner in the process because. Um, um, this, uh, the Chinese really wanted uh, very much to have a bigger foothold in, in, in the Middle East. And Saudi Arabia is now, uh, with having reduced the possibility of a conflict, of a war, of destruction in the region, uh, having, having reduced that possibility are going to be a, a better, um, destination for, uh, for Chinese uh, investments in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think that there is a lot of uh, animosity toward the Chinese. Uh, some of it perhaps uh, justified, some of it probably as a reaction to the regime in Iran itself, that I don't think that uh, the Chinese will have any um, bigger or any more significant um, uh, foothold in Iran. Um, but nonetheless, the, I think there, there will be a, a bigger presence of the Chinese in the region, in, in the region as a whole. I hope I've answered some of your questions. No, thank you, Nader. No, this is a very interesting um, platform to launch some of our discussions. And let me ask you this, because, you know, as someone who's been watching the developments between Iran and Europe um, for, for years now, it's very interesting that at the same time, that really the doors uh, of Europe are shutting to Iran for um, a number of reasons, including human rights issues, including Iran's support for Russia in the, in the Ukraine um, invasion. And the, the, the regional players uh, in the Arab world seem to be opening up to Iran, including on uh, promises of economic investment that we've heard from even the Saudi um, economic minister um, and, you know, from uh, countries like Qatar and UAE, we know things have already been moving um, over the past year or so. Does Iran, in your view, see the Arab world as now a potential breathing room for its um, economic um, prospects in the near future? Or is it, um, or does Iran know that there are very specific limitations to how far this relationship can go, uh, predominantly because of, let's say, US sanctions framework at the moment? Well, I think that uh, Iran has uh, always seen the Arab world as a certainly the the kind of the southern rim of the Persian Gulf as a destination for its investments. I mean, when you go to any of these countries, uh, be it uh, 
Qatar, be it uh, UAE, Kuwait, and some of these. And Iran continuously into you know Iranian um, business people who are uh, you know at, in uh, Oman the same thing. So Iran has always, um, uh, I would say that before. Um, I, I mean, um, the the Persian Gulf uh, states have been always the first uh, step of of Iranian investment, uh, and then you know after uh, certain limitations were put in place to limit Iranian investments in Iran. I mean, when you go to Dubai, you know half of Dubai, frankly, is uh, was built by uh, sort of like the the flight of capital that went from Iran. To, um, to 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 Dubai after the after the revolution, and after those uh, limitations were put in place, Iranians tried to go to Turkey, tried to go to the Caucasus. Um, some of the, I mean, some people went even to to Iraq and even Afghanistan. So uh, I think that it it does see Iran does see those countries as being. Um, being a good destination for investments, but I think it's on the private, uh, private to private, uh, um, uh, you know, relationship. Um, Iranian business people who want to have a way out of the country or you know a foothold somewhere else uh, use those um, those venues to to um, to be active outside of Iran. Um, I think that it's less of a government to government maybe it will be a more government to government now there are certainly a lot a, a, quite a few hurdles in in the relationship of government to government um you know gas fields the, the, the delineation of gas fields the the the, the issue with the, with the, those uh, persian gulf uh, um, islands and so on and so forth so there will be um, i mean there will be quite a lot to disentangle for the government to government um, relations in my view but private private businesses have been there for, for forever even you know going um, hundreds a uh, hundred years ago or even longer um there there have been very very active uh, cross border um, investments trade and so on Another, you mentioned that you you expect that because of restrictions and limitations for the foreseeable future, the economic uh, cooperation between Iran and the GCC states, or at least let's say Iran and Saudi Arabia here specifically, is likely to remain at a symbolic level. Do you see areas um, of potential cooperation, or let's say investment um, from Saudi Arabia and other Gulf monarchies in the Iranian market that could be of direct benefit to the Iranian people in this very, very difficult um, set of circumstances that they find in themselves, you know, including the, the domestic repression at home, um, the international framework of sanctions, and particularly U.S. sanctions. Um, is there any sort of breathing room that could be provided um, on, on the degree of cooperation with the GCC states that could be of direct benefit to the people of Iran? Um I, I think there are opportunities. Um, the Iran, I mean, just judging by what I read in the papers and and the reaction that people, Iranian people, have, they they have become very wary of any government kind of um, uh, deals or government agreements. I mean, be it with any country, you know, the Chinese, of course, are are at the forefront. You know, Iran is being sold off to the Chinese, and and I would say that that sort of um, um, I would say 
animosity, I, I don't want to call it animosity, but let's say sensitivity will exist even uh, if uh, with Saudi Arabia or with any other country coming to Iran. However, there could be uh, sort of like pockets of um, of uh, areas that that could benefit uh, both sides. And uh, and I would say, for instance, let's say pharmaceuticals, for instance, is a, is a is a good uh, good area. I mean, that's, uh, investments in pharmaceuticals, investments in the talent pool of Iranian uh, Iranians inside Iran, and Iran has been very much self reliant, has has had to be to some extent. Uh, investments in pharmaceuticals, for instance, is one of those areas that would benefit both sides. In other words, nobody could say, oh, you know what, they're coming here to kind of, you know, uh, uh, rob or whatever, uh, um, plunder or exploit Iran. No, if, if for instance, there are uh, knowledge-based um, investments in areas that are of, of uh, benefit to the Iranian people, I think that uh, Iranians would not look as negatively toward that sort of investment. Um, of course, petrochemicals is another area where, for instance, Iranians and, uh, and um, you know, the Saudis could, could collaborate. But I would say more in, in areas that are um, perhaps directly, more directly linked to shortages that exist inside Iran, where a collaboration, where, you know, openness could uh, benefit the Iranian people. I think that would be uh, amenable to the Iranian psyche at the time, at the po- at this point in time. Thank you, Nadra. I'm going to come back to you on a, on a few other thoughts, but let me at this stage uh, bring in um, one of uh, our excellent experts um, from our network, uh, Sheikha Najla Al-Qasimi, who's the Director of Global Affairs at the Bahuth Research Center in Dubai. Um, Najla, I understand a few weeks ago you were also um, looking at these economic issues at the Doha Economic Forum, um, where I'm sure the, the recent tour between Iran and Saudi Arabia came up, uh, both including the challenges and uh, potentials it provides for the GCC states. Um, let me get some of your reflections to what Nadra has said and the broader um, geoeconomic picture as you see it um, following the Iran-Saudi deal. So over to you, Najla. Uh, thank you, uh, Eddie, for giving me the floor. Uh, and uh, actually, I do agree with uh, 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 with what Nadra was uh, discussing, but let me look at it from different perspective uh, a little bit. Uh, and uh, I would like to highlight the three points where I see uh, that it be, uh, it became the result of uh, of the rapprochement that we saw uh, happen with Saudi Arabia with between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and uh, I will uh, first mention the uh, internal uh, Saudi uh, policy change toward its uh, economy or economical structure of uh, Saudi Arabia itself, uh, and uh, the beginning of the uh, 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 the promotion of uh, uh, Vision Twenty Thirty, where Saudi Arabia start to see itself as a country not dependent on oil uh, alone. So they start to look into uh, broaden its uh, economical perspective, and uh, uh, also uh, the need of. Uh, uh, change in its oil uh, policy by uh, itself in order to facilitate for Vision 2030. So uh, uh, that led uh, Saudi Arabia, which is, I mean, uh, to be frank, it's the biggest country on the region, and uh, it is the country that uh, uh, 
can create a momentum of change uh, on the region uh, by uh, uh, such policy. And then we start to see uh, 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 also the de-escalation in uh, Saudi policy, which led also, uh, uh, as well as uh, the other countries on the region, decided, okay, we will, will have to look into how to solve uh, uh, some of the problems that went uh, into nearly a decade, like, for example, with Qatar, with uh, Yemen, a new approach to Lebanon, to Iraq. Uh, so uh, all of these uh, uh, led to also, uh, okay, why not Iran as well, to look into uh, a new policy or new approach toward Iran. Also, uh, Saudi Arabia start to look into international cooperation from different perspectives. Uh, and there was change uh, in its policy toward uh, Lebanon, toward um, uh, Yemen, Iraq, uh, and these, uh, uh, and uh, the way they approach uh, uh, their uh, 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 their um, uh, policy toward uh, solving uh, such uh, uh, problems or uh, or at least mediating in solving uh, some of the regional issues. All of these, I think, led to uh, uh, at least have an approach toward uh, Iran, which uh, didn't begin uh, with the Chinese. It was uh, prior to the Chinese uh, mediation. I think the Chinese uh, came when uh, the deal was nearly, I mean, fulfilled. Uh, but I would assume that uh, the main uh, idea behind this rapprochement is uh, for non-interference in uh, our, uh, our uh, relationships between the two countries, where uh, Iran has also uh, its own internal uh, issues that they need to solve uh, and have uh, um, uh, uh, have fear, if I may say, uh, of international interference on, uh, uh, on the base of human rights and uh, 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 and cer uh, certain issues uh, in relation. So uh, uh, they found that in this stage, there is uh, uh, an agreement that, okay, we do agree on non-interference at this stage. Does it include uh, economic cooperation? I think, I don't think so, but uh, um, uh, there is the aspiration to do. Uh, for us in the uh, GCC countries, the main, uh, uh, I mean, uh, if we want to create a momentum in, uh, in uh, increasing uh, the trade relation, it has to be government to government. Because if we speak about uh, private investment, uh, private investment will need a lot of agreement prior to any investment. Still, the, uh, the two uh, economical system between Iran and uh, the GCC country uh, very different from each other. Uh, uh, still, uh, 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 I wouldn't say that any of our system is mature enough in order to uh, uh, to push uh, some private companies to, to be able to, uh, uh, to invest uh, in Iran. Uh, if something or big projects happens between the two countries, it has to be government to government uh, in this stage, uh, at least, uh, in order to encourage private sector to uh, to participate. This rapprochement, maybe at least it 
created um, uh, an atmosphere where the movement of people is uh, easier. So uh, at least there is uh, a possibility for all established the connection to be reconnected again and maybe increased a little bit. Of course, UAE may be the, uh, one of the countries that is uh, more connected to Iran than any other uh, regional countries. Uh, but uh, 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 still, uh, there is a lot of um, uh, barrier like uh, the sanction against uh, Iran, uh, uh, which will make private investors a little bit reluctant on approaching Iran at this stage. Thank you, Najla. Let me ask you a, a quick follow-up uh, question because, you know, one of the questions for us uh, at ECFR looking at the geopolitics of this um, political thaw has been whether countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia may look to um, cement this political agreement uh, through economic cooperation in third states. Uh, and particularly here, we're thinking of Iraq um, as, a, as a neighbor that has been caught at the crossfire of these two um, countries for, for decades now. Um, do you see prospects that um, countries in the GCC, particularly Saudi Arabia, but not just Saudi Arabia, Qatar, will look at Iraq as testing grounds um, for, uh, let's say, some energy projects uh, that may involve um, elements um, from Iran um, to look at uh, testing out this economic cooperation? Um, or is that an area that is still quite distant? I wouldn't say distant. I will even say that it is a competitor. Uh, mm-hmm. state where we can uh, we can see uh, i mean uh, if we are speaking about uh, uh, the gcc countries for many years now are calling for uh, the connection of the electric uh, iraqi electricity uh, to the gcc grid but unfortunately that because that uh, sector is dominated by uh, Iraq, uh, Iran investment. So I think uh, it will there will be a competition uh, in this field. Also, the construction area. Iran is very much involved in Iraq in construction. So uh, I don't see... Uh, and still, uh, as I said, uh, the economical structure uh, for the GCC is still limited on what uh, how they can... Uh, uh, approach the new market. Uh, I don't see other areas where there can be uh, collaboration other than uh, energy and uh, construction uh, at this stage, at least. And maybe in the future, maybe uh, when the uh, vision of uh, diversification uh, more uh, mature in uh, the GCC countries, that can uh, be uh, tackled. But uh, until now, I think it's a little bit difficult, unless it is an Iraqi decision by themselves uh, to uh, 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 to diverse uh, their uh, uh, regional uh, uh, connections uh, with its neighbor. Thank you very much, uh, Najda. Najda, let me come back to you um, for maybe two um, final um, questions before we close the podcast part. Um, what are some of the cross-border challenges that you see um, in the economic sphere for all of these countries um, in Iraq, GCC and Iran, as they look to really put their economies first in the in the coming um, years and decades after all these long years of conflict and, and, and tension? Because there seems to be some key common challenges uh, that they're all facing where there might be areas and scope for cooperation. But I wanted your reflections on that. Uh, certainly, uh, they, they, I mean, we, 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 
we do have uh, very many regional, I mean, it's uh, some of these uh, big challenges like climate change uh, and so on don't stay within a, a, the borders of a, of a particular country. They, they are much more widespread. So climate change is, a different, is definitely one of those big regional, not only regional, but global, uh, global issues. And I think to some extent, this region uh, can play a very important role in the global uh, strategy or uh, in the global uh, context, because on the one hand, it is, of course, a you know carbon um, uh, exporter, I mean, oil exporter, but then at the same time, several of these countries have been uh, carrying out some really innovative uh, projects that no one else could afford to, to do, like Mastar in, in um, you know, in the UAE and so on. So in other words, they can play um, they they can play a very very decisive role. Uh, the other, uh, I mean, I see also two other very important uh, challenges uh, for this region as a whole, not just country by country. When you look at it, this region is uh, at the again, it's a bridge between different uh, important markets. It's the Eastern market, the East East Asia market, and of course the European market. So it's the bridge. And for all these many, many, I don't know, centuries and since, um, you know, since recorded history, it has been a bridge. It has been, uh, it has had a very important geostrategic location. It has determined, you know, the, the course of, uh, of history in many, many, um, which it's a long, long uh, story to, to get into, but, um, it could be, it could be played by different um, geopolitical forces, sometimes perhaps to the to, in a positive way, sometimes perhaps in the negative way. So we have the region has to be very conscious about not being played against each other in this big geopolitical um, game. But then there is one other, the last uh, challenge that I think is kind of regional, not only for for the countries that we are talking about, but just going beyond it, and it's the it's the persistence of fundamentalist Islam or Islamic fundamentalism, because uh, we are making in each country, every country is trying to make, you know, some progress, let's say on women's issues, on opening up, on being modern, on uh, modernization. And then, you know, we are always kind of being being pulled back by certain uh, fundamentalist, uh, uh, you know, forces in, inside our countries. Uh, look at uh, Afghanistan, look at every other country. And I think that is going to be a con continuous challenge that this region faces, in addition to other, all the other global challenges that every other country around the world chain faces. So the, this uh, Islamic fundamentalism is, I think, is an important um, challenge to to reckon with because it does uh, it can uh, tilt decision making in one way or another uh, i mean and it's it's it can really distort uh, policy thank you nadra and let me ask you a final point since um we are looking at the women of middle east network for peace building here and a lot of the countries in the region have um in i would say most certainly the past decade made a concerted push to have more participation by women in the labor force as part of diversifying their economies and um, boosting their economic output. Um, and, you know, for years, um, 
Iran had boasted that it had, you know, great participation of women at universities and labor force. But it does seem that um, the GCC states have really sort of outshone uh, Iran in that effort of getting more women um, in, in top positions of both um, uh, private companies, but also governmental positions. How do you see the GCC states using their talent pool uh, of women in particular um, going forward? In this effort, I, I think they have done. Uh, they have uh, achieved uh, amazing um, progress. To in my mind, I mean, I have been going to the region since the late uh, 1990s, so almost 25, 30 years, and I have seen the the evolution. I mean, I see the generations of of women who are coming up, and they in many many ways. And I'm not uh, exaggerating. They outshine the men of their of their generation. I mean, last year I was at the Dubai Expo, and there was this um, event uh, for uh, entrepreneurship. The Global Entrepreneurship Monitor uh, uh, report was being launched, and they had a group of uh, women and ma- male uh, entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs. And I tell you, the women were speaking English in a perfect way. They, they, their, their comments were very uh, comprehensive, very sort of like deep. I'm not saying that the men didn't have that, but the women were far better to, in, in my mind. So I think that what has happened, and congratulations to Najla and everybody else. So what has happened is that I think that the, that the GCC countries have realized that this is an untapped uh, talent pool that must be brought into the, into the you know in, into the economies uh and i and i think that what has happened is that they have made made sure that women are being seen i think in in the uae there are an equal number of women ministers uh, to male ministers if i if i'm uh, you know at, or at least at some point in time there were quite a few women ministers in key positions in key um you know uh, portfolios the same thing has had is happening now in saudi arabia as well i i see really a very you know qualified women coming to the i mean when i just look at the at the ambassadors in washington dc the the gcc countries have some of the most uh, most number of i mean most a lot of the women, uh, women ambassadors in Washington D.C. are actually from the GCC countries. Saudi Arabia has a has a, a, a female ambassador, and you know, a couple of other countries or they've had. So I think that what has happened is that just pushing women in in very uh, critical decision making uh, positions has actually opened up the 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 road for other women to step in, and I'm sure that in in the long run it will pay off. Iran has not done that. And in a way, we are suffering from that and that process. Iran still Absolutely. has a long way to go on that front. Absolutely, Nadra. And um, let me just uh, close uh, our podcast with something that we normally do at ECFR. And uh, Nadra, feel free to also contribute here if you have anything on your thoughts. But uh, it's our bookshelf section. Um, uh, Nadra, what have you read recently or is on your reading list uh, that you would recommend uh, for our listeners uh, that may be relevant to this topic? Oh, recently. Recently, I read something by Francis Fukuyama, which was about liberalism and its discontent, which is an interesting history of how uh, economic liberalism has evolved and uh, and where the sources of of uh, um, of disagreement with it come. So it it is an interesting book. But I um, perhaps uh, when you uh, when you said book, the one book that I have actually benefited greatly from 
is by um, and you know when I came to work on the Middle East, I wasn't really uh, very uh, proficient in in that. It's, it's it's called a political economy of the Middle East, and it has gone through several editions. It's by uh, Alan Richards and John Waterbury, and what I found in that book is that it was an in- interesting. Um, great summary for the whole region. It's not easy to to cover everything from uh, you know from Morocco to to Iran, from you know Syria to Yemen. But it was a very interesting summary and and excellent uh, uh, kind of putting together the pieces and connecting the dots uh, for the region. So if 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 that is of uh, interest to people who really want to understand the Middle East, and I think that that would be one of the books that I would. Uh, recommend plus of course Fukuyama's uh, book thank you thank you Najla do you have anything to add to our summer readiness any new articles you've read or books that you'd recommend uh, actually uh, uh, not really uh, mostly I read for my work nowadays <laughs> so uh, what I was reading uh, I'm, I'm rereading uh, uh, Kissinger's book uh, on uh, on China because China now and uh, every uh, uh, analysis everybody is uh, want to understand where we are going but uh, I mean uh, 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 what I recommend, I I don't think I will be able to recommend something, but uh, it depends on uh, the need of you. What you are reading <laughs> is the uh, the main. Uh, I mean, for me, this is how I choose my book. Uh, I read according to what I need uh, nowadays. Uh, hopefully, one day I will be able to read for leisure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Najla. Um, let me thank Nadra and uh, Najla for their contribution. And we look forward to our next session of uh, the podcast for Women of Middle East Network for Peace Building. Uh, for now, we hope you all enjoy your summers and we will definitely hope to tune in with another session soon. So thank you very much for that.